Today on episode 114 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Ken Bauer shares how to engage the heart and mind through the connected classroom. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Here's a little behind the scenes secret that isn't that interesting, but but might become interesting in a little bit. Usually I record these intros all by myself, but I actually already have today's guest on the line with me. Ken, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks, Bonnie. Actually, I, I actually listened to the podcast, so I'm just bumping my head along to the music because I'm used to listening to that intro. I love the music. It is one of the two. I've only actually received two criticisms of the podcast in the couple of years we've been doing it, which I think is pretty good. But one of them, a woman just did did not like the music. And I was like, well, it's only 30 seconds. I think you can grin and bear it. <laughs> I'll disagree. <laughs> I love it too, but I have that eclectic taste in music. The reason I wanted to have you on is, of course, I could read your bio. And I'm very good at reading. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know I, I excel at that skill. But yes, indeed. I want to hear you tell a story. How did you wind up where you are? Where do you live? Where did you used to live and, and how did you get there? So I'm a Canadian. I, I grew up in Victoria, British Columbia, born and pretty well raised all my life there. My father's a sailor, so I spent a couple week or a couple years on the east coast of Canada. But all of my life in Victoria, undergrad at the University of Victoria, computing science, did my master's at the University of Washington in Seattle, uh, one of my undergrad professors that I really, really loved and I modeled my teaching after him, sent me there and I met uh, a Mexican and so I ended up in Mexico and I've been teaching here most of the time since 1995 in this same institution, the Tecnológico de Monterrey, it's hard to say that in English, in the Guadalajara campus, technically in Zapopan, which is in the Guadalajara metropolitan area. And um, I went back to work as a software engineer for a year and a half and my students wanted me to come back and be what was the, um, what we call the, the godfather of their graduating class, or padrino in Spanish, and they invited me in 1998, in May in 1998, in December to be the, the godfather of their generation, and I just, I decided I wanted to teach forever, so I came back, and that's been my full-time, full-time thing since January 1999 here on the campus. One of the things that's really resonated as I've gotten to know you a little bit over Twitter. A day. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, it's a, it's kind of nice because I feel like we, I've seen your name yeah. a few times and then start started. We were on a couple of sessions together. Ditto. Tell me about your sense of love in teaching. So this came up a lot with, with Amy Collier's presentation this morning, actually, and we had a session with her two days ago. And for me, I've always been a teacher that I, I, I'm not going to be there and I'm not going to lecture I want to really connect with my students. For me, teaching isn't about giving them the content of that CS1 course, the computing course, or the software engineering course, or whatever I happen to be teaching that semester, but really making a connection with my students. And I want to I have those students that come back and find me 10, 
20 and even longer years later and come back and 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 thank me or or ask for my advice and and so that's really my job as an educator it's not just preparing them in, in writing algorithms and computer science it's preparing them for the world and and I don't like the stereotypes of of software engineers don't know how to communicate and the arts people don't get what the engineers do I, I don't like going with that stereotype but I really think it's important for me to bring that level of um, richness to my classroom that my students know how to communicate with each other with me how to ask questions in the Tech de Monterey we call these the the transversal qualities that we try to teach to all of our students we're not a liberal arts college in that way but even though we are focused on engineering and business degrees we try to push that through the curriculum as opposed to just a special course in each one of these qualities and so I, I really try to push that into my curriculum and for me that's why spending time with my students is is so important when I was in college it was my senior year and I had always thought I was going to be a high school teacher. That was from the youngest age I can remember. Me too. And my dad's business, he was in agriculture, and his business went under because down here in Southern California, there was a drought in the late 80s, early 90s. And I could tell the story a little longer, but I probably won't do it justice. Let's just say they were not paying for me to get that fifth year of college. That was required to get my teaching credential. And so I ended up working in business, not understanding what it was, but my perception was that good people go into teaching and become firefighters and Mm -hmm. bad people. And I don't think it was necessarily bad people, but I just, I didn't see the heart that was in business and is in business today. And so it's fun to get to talk to someone like you who has such a big love for your students, a love for the subjects you teach. And, and kind of that undercurrent of pulling that out of your students and showing them those connections if they are like me at the time who couldn't necessarily see how their heart can come into the work that they do. Yeah, and I think it's, I think the stereotype comes in as well that we're teaching technology and, and a lot of people, oh, you're, you're tech, you're, you don't have heart, you're, you have no soul, where, where that's for the, for the arts. And, and I, I think that's not true. I, I think we, we have a passion for teaching and we'd like to share that with our students. Today we're looking at something called the connected classroom. Before we even define what that is, just describe one to me. Think of the a great memory that you have of a connected classroom where you thought, wow, this is an incredible experience. And through that description, I think we'll find some of the definition of a connected classroom. Wow. So there's an activity that I always do with teachers where I ask them to, to um, or even anyone, to identify the four people that they are the way they are because of those four people, whether it's a negative or a positive experience that they've had in their lives. And I've got my list of four. I won't go through all of them, and one of them is negative. But one was was this teacher who sent me to the University of Washington, uh, Bjorn Freeman Benson. And I got choked up talking about him because he was such a great teacher. And, and I remember his classroom being that type of classroom where the students either really loved that instructor or they just didn't like it at all. It was very polar. And and I loved it because it was much more where he gave us the voice of the classroom. We spent way more time talking about software engineering and in particular object-oriented programming because that was the course. And and he really listened to us. And for me, that was so important that I, I felt that I had a voice with my peers. I think that's where I really got a passion for teaching 
I originally wanted to be a high school teacher as well, but I remember the province of British Columbia extended the the retirement age. So I thought, oh, well, crap, I don't have a job as a teacher now, so I'll, I'll do something else. But I think that class really showed me the model of the way I wanted to teach as as my career went forward. And I keep looking back at, at Bjorn's class and really appreciating the, the work that he did as a teacher. What are some of the elements then of a connected classroom and what kind of made his classroom remind you of connected classrooms? I think it was um, it was probably because it was a more of an upper year course and it was the first chance we really got to do some real collaborative work in a group of, of four students. And, and I can't name any names, but there, there was always the person who didn't do as much work as the other ones. And, and we learned a lot of skills of how to communicate, how to collaborate. And this is the 19, early 1990s, so it wasn't like we were working in our bunny slippers on the internet together. We had to actually physically go and sit in someone's kitchen and work on code and, and pull out paper and diagrams and, and work as a collaborative team. For, for me, that was it was a new experience working in a team like that and having the teacher who was able to let go of control. That was something I really found that was really good in that classroom. They weren't dominating the conversation. They were letting us run the show. Whether we were going to fail or not wasn't so important, but he, he really let us run the show. And tell me about one of your connected classes and maybe how he's inspired some aspects of it or maybe how even technology has afforded you to do some things that maybe he wasn't even able to back then. So for me, the connected classroom is really important because even though I have that luxury of, of having about three hours a week, I see my students and that's really, really important for me to get that face time and get to know my students <laughs> I find that the technology gives us the affordances that I can I can share a really cool article I just saw. And if I perhaps have a Facebook group for my class, I can sit at lunch and I'm, I'm sharing this article. And I notice that, you know, I have five likes and, and a couple of comments on that post I shared that isn't the course material, but it's it's tangential and relevant to what we're seeing or, or to their degree program that they're studying. And I can connect to my students online because I've got that cell phone in my hand and I happen to have it while I'm eating lunch with my colleagues and they're, they're equally nerdy as me, so they're probably doing the same thing, so it's okay. Um, I don't get, I don't get uh, shut down by the colleagues saying, drop your phone. So that's really fun. There are always these barriers that are up, whether we intend them to be there or not. And so just the allowing your students to see some parts of your personality, whether that be the music you listen to or the thing. In fact, the other day we were going back and forth on direct messages and you mentioned going to play Pokemon with your son. And of mm -hmm. course, I instantly connect with that. Oh, my husband plays, just started playing that with our son too. And I got to get out there and, and test it out myself. But it's when you have that with another person you've just lowered that wall. You've made yes. yourself more accessible as a teacher. And I think that when we have a heart for caring about our students, it can sometimes be even harder to have the lenses to realize how scary we can still be. I mean, we can, we can have that heart and have it be a true desire of ours to connect, but we have to just continually never let up with being intentional about the fact that there is this power dynamic that... Mm -hmm will 
I don't know, will it always be present? I think I, I think for the foreseeable future, it's going to be present, I think, in, in my world. And I've actually got a good example, a good story about that. I've got a video of, of a student, Frida. She was an animation, digital animation student. She still is. I think she graduates this year. And I, I usually ask my students to prepare a video or a blog post at the end of the year or the end of the semester to say, what they liked, what they didn't like about the course, not the content, but the, the delivery method. And it's more of a kind of a letter to the next year's students to say, here, this is how to be successful in Ken Bauer's class. And some of them go with that route. But Frida talked about the fact that one, she was embarrassed that she might need to see this video next semester if she fails the course, because she was right on the line. And, and so that was really embarrassing for Mary. She didn't say it in the video, but she said it in the email. And then she talked about the fact that the ability for me to not to not lecture my classroom because I flip my classroom to spend more time one-on-one -on -one with my students. I sit beside them and I sit beside Frida and we work on our code. I know that she struggles with when to use a for loop instead of a while loop. And I also know what they do in their activities, what type of sports they have or, or their brothers or sisters that might have been students with me. And Frida told me that she felt and this gets to my recommendation later, that it was much easier for her to come to my office because she knew me. We had this connection. And, and a 17, 18-year-old girl going to some 40-something male professor's office on the fourth floor of a building, there's a tension there. And I, and I can remember it as, a, as an undergraduate. I never went to my teacher's offices until the fourth year. And that's when I actually got to meet Bjorn and, and spend lots of time with him in his office. But for me, it, it showed that that connection, that, that ability to connect, whether it's music, like you said, I play music at the beginning of every class, and um, that's really important to my students, that it broke down that barrier, and she was able to come and see me in my office and ask me for help and not feel embarrassed about it, or that she's imposing or getting in the way or using my valuable time. So that, that's really important for me that, that that connection makes. And I think the fact that we got to hang out in a session yesterday made today easier. Yeah, made absolutely. me less nervous. <laughs> and me too. <laughs> so tell me about what people typically struggle with when they maybe get inspired with the idea of doing a connected class, letting go of this control, having there be this more collaborative environment. What are some of the things that they tend to struggle with in getting this approach to work the way they want it to? I think you said the key word is control, Bonnie. It's, it's a lot of us are or maybe control freaks, or maybe a better term for that. But we like to have things lined up, and we know what's what's going to happen with our students, and we, and we set up all the ducks in a row and check this off, check this off, and then you get that activity done. And I think the fact that I have a connected classroom where my students, their homework assignments are blog posts, and they do videos, and, and I'm looking at, at some poetry that one student wrote, Maria Fernanda, um, last year for my class, they get the ability to share their own personality in their posts. And that's great. They, they get to create um, blog posts with memes in it or funny pictures and images, and they decorate their blogs the way they want to. And the way that the connected course works is we have a feed WordPress mechanism that Alan Levine did an awesome job documenting. You can check that out. Uh, we'll share the link. Is that all of their posts show up on my course site. So there could be like some totally not safe for work image show up on my course website because some 18 year old 
adolescent male decided that was a cool image to put in their blog post. And it, and it has sort of kind of happened. But I have to let go of control that I, I can't control what content's going to show up there. And maybe not that. Maybe it's just not a really good piece of work. And it's showing up on my course site, which is under my kenscourses.com or whatever my, my domain is. And that can be scary for a lot of people. It's not scary for me at all because I'm, I'm this weird rebel that I can get away with things down here in Mexico. But I, I talked to faculty about innovation and maybe the number one difficulty for faculty in, in innovating in their practice is the fear of ridicule by their colleagues, the fear that the students don't get it, and number one really is the fear of their teaching evaluations. Yeah, that's been a theme that's come up so much on this show is just that when we do these more collaborative types of things with our students, not only is it giving up that control, but it's giving up the predictability for the students Mm. that in many cases they have grown to really enjoy. I go in, you spit out information, I take that information in, and then in a few weeks, I spit that information back out to you. And that can become a really comfortable pattern. It's predictable. I don't have to be very challenged. I don't have to fail. I don't have to, I mean, if I'm a reasonably okay student, I don't have to fail. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's kind of what what some of our students have just grown to appreciate that norm. So sometimes if you start to experiment with these things, you go, holy cow, wait, they said this was a good thing. Ken says <laughs> his favorite yeah. teacher, you know, one of, one of his real inspirations. Wait, well, how come it doesn't work for me? Right. And it may be actually working for you because you're actually challenging your students in a new way that's uncomfortable, but the other side is really it's cool. It's a scary line. And, and, and one of my colleagues, Nancy White, that I did work with her last year, uses that word confusiasm or mm. confusiasm. And I shared that with you yesterday. In Spanish, it's nice because it translates to confusiasmo. But it's that you're on that edge of I'm confused, but I'm really enthusiastic. And that's, that's where we learn a lot of things. And as a teacher that's been doing a lot of this, and I tend to change my classroom radically every January, I forget that I've been evolving what I've been doing over the last technically 21 years, but consciously over the last six years, changing the way I work with my students. And they want to kind of, and they, when I say they, other teachers see what I do and they're scared that this can't work for me. And and my answer is you just got to take baby steps and change those things you can change and drive it in your direction. You're not going to be Ken Bauer's class. You're going to be you. You're going to be Bonnie's class and you're going to have Bonnie's students and they're different students than mine and and just let go experiment and find out what works for you. I'm glad that you mentioned baby steps and I want to just kind of talk a little bit about what the full full force connected classroom looks like and then let's go small teaching to to credit James Lang let's do let's back it up after we paint that vision to just a, a way to get started so let's start with the real full board connected classroom we have students who are blogging, maybe they're including video or poetry or photography, all different kinds of media in their own individual blogs. And if it's full force connected, then we're talking about things that the public can see, right? Anyone on the internet can see it. It's not behind any kind of a password. 
and comment on it and or not and and a lot of people get upset or scared because they're they're going to expose their students on the internet and they can publish as batman 23 if they want to mm -hmm. they don't have to put their face there they don't have to put their real name there and we do talk about this this opens up some wonderful conversations about digital identity with my students but that's a whole different that's a whole different story so they do share all of their blog posts sometimes um, it gets large because some of my students, I usually have about a hundred students in this one course with a couple sections or three sections, and they're all sec they're all syndicating to this one mother blog, my my course where my syllabus is and and all of their syndicated content. I'm setting up this semester's blogs and I'm looking back at last semester's course, and there's thirteen hundred and sixty eight blog posts there from my students, which is pretty darn massive, really. To be honest, I didn't read all of them, and, and my students know that, and they understand that I don't have time to read every single one of their creations, and they're actually fine with that, because I, I, I try to teach them it's more about your reflection on your learning that's really important there. So yeah, there's it's, it's massive. That was one of the things that Michelle Miller spoke about. Michelle Miller is the author of minds online and i'll put a link to the show that she was on if anyone wants to go back and listen to that one but one of the things she spoke about when she was a guest was this whole idea of even in her classes having quizzes that she didn't necessarily grade each and every single answer and that still today even though i talked to her such a while <laughs> back i still my mind is going wait a minute wait a minute but you're not doing your job if you don't you look know, at every single thing it it, it challenged me and then it yes. and then it kind of made me think well there's really something to this. And I kind of have been the same way with blogs because I work so much with people who haven't blogged before. And a lot of times with people who just didn't grow up accustomed to sharing every meal, you know, a photograph of every every carefully constructed Pinterest worthy meal online, this is a terribly uncomfortable thing for them. So yes. I have always felt as the educator will because they are working so hard and taking so many personal risks i better do them the service of reading everything but i have to let go of that a little bit and you've really inspired I felt that me. way bonnie at the start of doing this before the blogging i had my students do a lot of youtube videos showing their mastery content of different topics and and it just killed me i i, I summed up the number of hours of youtube video i had to watch my students and and and, and i did watch all of them that first semester and I, I just couldn't do it anymore. And then I'm asking them to do three minute videos and they make 27 minute epic YouTube videos that I'm still watching at 1.5 times speed, but I can't slog through all that content. And, and they get to know that and that's fine. Yeah, it's a whole different paradigm that you don't have to view every single work product but to create that energy and that excitement around them seeing each other's creations and even extending it well beyond your class. And that actually was the other thing I was going to mention as we described the full force connected classroom, the right. you're actually leveraging every every possibility. We would They're also be thinking about yeah, they yeah, get yeah. exposed to the public. My former students, I don't like using the word ex-student because that's a, a final term. My students from the past come and comment on their posts or they answer questions on Twitter that my students have about about the course content and, or even people that weren't my students, just random followers on the internet are, are injecting themselves and saying hi, like Laura uh, Gogia did the other day for, for some of my students um, in one of the classes. So they're getting exposed to the live internet. They're getting authentic audience we we like to think they're going to have better quality product because they're not um, they're not delivering for one 
they're delivering for for everyone and their stuff lives on I, I have a part of the connected courses when you set it up you're going to want to lock it down at the end of the course so that their stuff doesn't disappear that you keep copies of everything because because I'm that way I like to keep copies of everything but my students blogs are still there and, and they don't make them go away I'm, I'm looking at Fernanda's right here in front of me I brought up the original so I could see what her her portal pictures looks like and everything else in the context the way she wrote it not the way it comes into my site they're still there they, they still keep blogging and the end and my students have taken this idea that they were blogging for my course and then they do it for different courses or they do it for their school club or their church group or whatever they're involved in they they bring it to another domain so mediums come up a little bit in our slack channel mm-hmm. and robert talbert was trying to have us not think of it as a blogging platform mm-hmm. and and maybe a little bit more as a community than we might think of as a normal blogging platform. But I apologize, Robert, and I'm going to call it a blogging platform for just uh, a just moment. He just tweeted, I think it was yesterday, asking <laughs> us to come up with a generic name for these type of platforms. So yeah, ah. I, I followed a bit of the conversation. Maybe a publishing platform might be closer because like right. LinkedIn now, people can go pl- publish their own things within LinkedIn. And so this... What I've heard about Medium is that it's far easier for someone to get started and then Mm -hmm. also to have students easier to follow students and have Mm -hmm. students follow you and and create the sense of a mother blog without actually having the technical expertise. I have gone back and forth in the past because I, like you, I teach a lot of business students and part of what we should be doing is helping to prepare them for their careers And Mm -hmm. WordPress is just so prominent still now that I kind of feel like if we can just take that little extra bit past a proprietary tool like Medium, you can still use Medium if you know how to use WordPress, but it just introduces a lot of really important concepts like what's a page and what's a post and how are those two things different and that kind of thing. So I I go back and forth, but I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. I I think it might be a good getting started. The struggle between lightweight and easy to use and also... You know, just leaving some power tools in their hand and seeing what's going to go on. And, and th- we're also getting back, Bonnie, to that question of we like to kind of control the way they're going to do it as opposed to letting them go free. I tend to let my students set up any platform they want as long as it produces an RSS feed that I can chew on and put into my, my mothership blog. So my students have used, I think they've used Weebly. No MySpace lately, but with Known is a great platform. It's an open source platform that I really like their platform or WordPress or Blogger. Anything that'll spit out RSS, I can take and massage into into the Mothership blog. And we've talked about RSS, but just give a quick definition for anyone who's a new listener. RSS is real simple syndication. So what it is, is kind of a summary of the posts that are on that blog. I'm really simplifying here. Mm-hmm. Um, to let a machine know what's there. So what happens is the mothership blog knocks on the student's blog and say, hey, is there any new material? And if there is, let me know. And they, they communicate in a very light manner that they, it only says, oh, we've got these posts, here's the title, here's the author, and here's a first paragraph. And then the mothership blog and go, oh, great, let me pull in the rest of those contents. So it's a way for computers to talk to other uh, computers. I'm totally oversimplifying and someone will slaughter me for that one but that's okay i think over we should be simple on these things in fact i will link to a great video by rss is the glue that keeps the internet held together in many ways and and makes it so personal to us i can Mm -hmm. read your blog and go wow 
not only did he have amazing things to say today, but I bet you he's going to have amazing things to say next week. And I don't want to miss it just because I'm not on Twitter when you happen to tweet right, out a post. Subscribe. There's all sorts of fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So that's wonderful. And I'm, I appreciate that you've just helped shape my mind a little bit of why not use any blogging tool you want to. And I can still say WordPress is a good skill to have. I, I but love WordPress and I always recommend WordPress. Yeah. But- Use what you want to use as long as I can massage it into my workflow. And I think especially for me, that's helpful because unless the class is called an introduction to WordPress, why, why do I need to push that necessarily? So that's, that's really helpful. Well, this is actually the point in the show where we each get to give some recommendations and I'm excited to share mine. I think it might sound a little cold at first because it's all about making our work a little faster when it comes to writing things and writing to people. It's called Text Expander. And I actually had to go back because I'm compulsive about not recommending the same thing for me more than, you know, more than once. And it was actually recommended by my husband, Dave, all the way back on episode eight. But I'm going to recommend it from me this time. And it is a tool called Text Expander. And many of us know about autocorrect, where on our phones, if we mistype something or we're starting to type a word and it figures out what we actually want to type, that it'll actually fill the whole word in. Or if you're me and you're talking to Ken Bain and you type the Minerva Prize, it'll type the Manure Prize. So we get ourselves into some trouble sometimes. But those built-in tools to our phones, text messaging, and those built-in tools to our computers can really go a long way in terms of features. And what Text Expander can do is where I just type in a couple of keystrokes and it can put out whatever text I've put in there. A classic example for me is I can never remember my work phone number because I don't ever answer my phone. I'm never sitting at my desk. It's my cell phone that's the one I actually answer. But I do need to put my work number in a number of times. I have a text expander snippet that I type in the letter Z and then VU phone, I think is what I type in. And all of a sudden, there's the phone number. I don't have to remember it. But I can also type in something like for now for the show notes for all of the podcast episodes, I type in a few keystrokes and all of a sudden the whole entire template comes up Mm -hmm. and I can fill, I can actually put fill-ins. And so for today's episode, it said, you know, who's your guest, Ken Bauer. And what's the topic you're talking about? What's the title of the episode? What's the episode number? And it puts all of those variables into my text. And the reason I said it might seem cold is that I'm using this a lot because our our campus is rolling over to a new learning management system in the fall. And I'm getting a lot of the same questions. Mm -hmm. And it might seem like, wow, that's really like you're some robot or something. How did you type that so fast, Bonnie? (laughs) What it allows me to do, I can customize the messages and say, I hope that your daughter's doing okay. I know she's been ill or whatever. But it allows me to free up that much more time for the meaningful things that don't involve answering a step-by-step help desk type of question. And you won't forget to include a piece that should have been there. Exactly. So I'm a big fan of Text Expander. And I was going to go look up what the Windows equivalent is. I actually remember there's one called Brevi. There's a number of these text expansion types of tools. But I saw that they have a beta out on Windows too. So people could check out the Text okay. Expander Windows and see if that uh, version works. But there's a 
lot of different tools that do the same sort of thing. So tell us, Ken, what are your recommendations for today? That's basically programming. And we could tell the kids about the old days when we had (laughs) keyboard overlays on our keyboards, but that's a whole different story. (laughs) So I was going to recommend two things quickly. If you're interested in connected courses, contact me. And I'm sure Bonnie have the contacts there. But Alan Levine publishes lots. And he has a series of five blog posts, I believe, called Building Connected Courses, Feed WordPress 101. And so if you go to Alan's blog, he has this amazing detail of how to set up your own feed WordPress if you're so inclined to set that up. And I followed it exactly and gave him some feedback to to improve it. So that's one recommendation. Or find your local nerd that will help you set it up. I've, I've set it up for other people. The other tool I was going to recommend today is using the youcanbook.me system, which ties into my Google Calendar. And I don't like doing office hours where I sit here and wait for students to show up. And I like the students to be able to reserve a 15-minute block or a half-hour block with me. And they can do that online. They get an immediate email, which lets them know. It goes into my Google Calendar so that I know I have to be in my office at that hour so that my student will know that I'm there for them. And it really, it it makes it easier for me to know where I am. The students get more of a commitment that they make a commitment to come and see me. And I like it because I actually see my students more now as opposed to sitting in an office in a static time that doesn't work for everyone because they have sports or whatever else. So I leave my whole day open and then they can block time with me during the week. And that's made a lot more connection for my students. And I like it. And we use it for other stuff like booking uh, conference rooms and stuff on campus. The tool that I've been using for a couple of years now is called Time Trade. And a friend Mm -hmm. of mine recently told me about You Can Book Me. And she's one of those super geeky friends who when she tells you something, you know, you've, that's going to be the best of whatever it is out there. And one of the things I really was impressed about You Can Book Me is just that you can provide other information in that same mm-hmm. context. For example, if a student was setting up office hours with you, would there be any information you would want to tell them? Should they bring something? Yeah. Should they come early? Should they let you know if they're not going to be able to make it on time? Whatever the the kinds of information and, and the service I use is just not quite as flexible in terms mm-hmm. of that other information in context. And as you said, it's got other features too, like booking conference rooms and you can get yeah. real, real fancy with it. Are you yeah. using the free version or are you using I'm using the free ones? version. It does, it does enough. I, I actually, I should throw this some money. I'm, I'm kind of the person that likes to, um, to throw money at different projects that I think are really valid and producing good software. And it's also a good message for my students to, to support work of others. Uh, I do support a lot of other products, but I should throw some money as well. It lets me customize it too. To uh, I found that I needed to tell my students, please tell me why you're coming to see me so I can do a little bit of prep before you show up, as opposed to just, I know you're going to be here at one fifteen for 15 minutes and I have no idea why. A lot of these tools, at least the earlier versions of them, you had to leave your calendar wide open. Right. <laughs> so it would be like as if you were available 24 hours a day, Monday through Friday. And and with these now, the way they work is you can just have, you know, a two hour block on a Monday yeah. that's open. But if you schedule a doctor's appointment on your personal calendar in the middle of those two hours, it's not going to list that as right. available back on you can book yeah, me or it automatically comes. picks up from my Google and doesn't let them schedule something that I already have scheduled. But I learned the tip is 
make sure you block out extra time before you need to run to be to your next class. Because I've had students book the 15 minutes right before my class, but then they're here and I've got like 10 seconds to run to my classroom. Yeah, you definitely have to think about those margins in our lives for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, Ken, thank you so much for being on the show. I hope it's just the first of many conversations since I don't think we're done yet. <laughs> no. I think we've just begun. <laughs> we've opened the box. Yes, I really appreciate your time and it's just the way that you generously give of your knowledge to others. Well, thank you, Bonnie. This has been great and I look forward to much more collaboration going forward. It was so great having Ken on the show this week. And one of the things he told me before we started recording is that he listens to the show all the way through to the end. So today's outro is dedicated to Ken, who I know is still listening. <laughs> if you would like to subscribe to the weekly updates, what you get in that weekly update is a single email from me with the show notes to all the great stuff that Ken and I talked about, all those links in there so you don't have to remember to go to the episode to find that information, and also an article about teaching or productivity from me. You can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe, and when you do, you'll get the newly redesigned Ed Tech Essentials Guide with 19 tools to help you use technology in your teaching and productivity. You can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com dot com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks for all the encouragement on the newly redesigned teaching in higher ed website. It's been fun to see a lot of people come up there. We are now paying more for our web host, but it's worth it to have more of you as a part of the community. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you next time.